0: Hello and welcome to the Villain Podcast. The track which introduced this episode is a previously unreleased, untitled song from producer and MC Aeon Grey. You can now pick it up on Bandcamp, along with everything else from his catalog, on the homepage for his Central Standard label, and the track will play out in its entirety to close out this episode. To me, the song conjures post-apocalyptic imagery, using a non-linear lyrical approach to collage concepts and frame them into a broader scene. To quote its closing line, he raps, Stand up and pledge allegiance to your bondage, while the anthem keeps us down on our knees, believing its progress. Looking back on our conversation, this line coincides with the question I was hoping to bring up talking about what speaking truth to power through art even looks like or means today. Likewise, seeing as though his body of music covers nearly 20 years, I figured that he was as good of a person as anyone to ask about what the term conscious rapper might mean, if it ever really meant anything to begin with, but we never really got there. Instead of sifting through a lot of the questions I had about trivial background information and others about the changing face of hip-hop or some key musical milestones, we focused primarily on the here and now. And in doing so, it was an immediate reminder that you never, ever, ever, ever really know what someone else might be going through. The day we were originally going to link up, he lost his voice so we rescheduled our conversation. Then the day of our call, I had system issues and couldn't record the call on my computer, which led to recording it on the fly. Maybe I'm drawing connections where they don't exist, but later in our conversation, Aon Grey comments on how he's shifted away from being hyper-focused on a pristine sound quality with his music in lieu of capturing the moment and appreciating the magic found within imperfections. The sound quality here is regrettable, but in some ways it's also perfect. At some points, there's a lawnmower and traffic noise in the background, but at others you can also hear birds chirping. Without getting too precious about my reflection on things, I still think this is worth bringing up to set the tone for what you're about to hear, recognizing the substantial value to the message, despite the recording's raw aesthetics. Solidifying in 2006 and releasing its debut album less than two years later, to quote the group's label bio, Maxilla Blue remains as a well-preserved tribute to the classic raw hip-hop combo of one producer, one DJ, and one MC, bolstered by each component's thirst for craft perfection. When we started our conversation, I wanted to know how the sound of the new material might have shifted from that blueprint, and if there were any challenges within that process, considering the group's long hiatus. The answer, as I quickly found out, was far more complicated than I could have ever imagined.
1: Touch nice and I nice, stayed really close-connected. Uh, as for kind of, over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years, he was kind of doing his own thing, right? He heavy into the graffiti scene, curating walls, all of those things. And, and I, I think he was doing kind of his own music, right? And to be honest, I, I was raised in a family, so I, I kind of bowed out, I guess. But, uh, you know, the 8035 opportunity came up, and we all kind of, you know, he kind of pitched it to us as just saying, I don't even want to do it unless we're all going to do it. And then we met and kind of sat down and really started talking about Maxilla for the first time in, you know, 10 years or so. And we just said, if we're going to do this, this was probably December at some point, maybe early January. But we said, you know, if we're going to do this, we've got plenty of time. Let's record a new record. Let's go all out for this show, right? That was the, the kind of the intention. So we, we immediately started working on things. I mean, none of us have been idle over the past ten years, just not really connecting. So I sent him, you know, probably close to like two hundred tracks, and just said, "Take your pick. Let's start working on things." And uh, and he, you know, he started the writing process. Touchstones was coming through and kind of doing some layering in terms of scratching and, and just turntablest pieces. And, and we, we were kind of hitting momentum. We had, uh, so we had kind of our first recording session, just me and Aztec. And the goal there was to get, he had nine songs that he wanted to record. We recorded seven that first day. But then, uh, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what everyone knows as of yet, but about a month ago, his daughter passed away. So, she was 20 years old. Um, she grew up with us, right? Like, I remember her when she was... Like, early days of Max Hillis, she was three, four, five years old. So, she was really close to us all, obviously. Really close to him. I mean, they were... They were a pair, right? They were best friends. They were pretty much the same person. So, obviously, that... I mean, I won't say it derailed anything, because it's... It, it doesn't... Do justice to to what happened, right? Like that happened, and everything else just became man. None of this other stuff matters, right? It just became about making sure that he was okay, and and knowing as well that he's not going to be okay, right? So it, it it got the last kind of month has been. I mean, it just it put a halt on all that, right? To so the point where we were talking, man. If we don't even do eighty thirty five, if you want not feeling it, I don't care. Like, we don't need to do it. It doesn't, you know, it was really whatever he needed to do to kind of try and, like, help him get through this, we were willing to do. But, you know, it just, so it kind of put a hold on everything. I mean, for for valid reason, right? So, we, we honestly, to be totally honest, we really only practiced a handful of times. Most of those practices have been, you know, just sessions where we just talked because, there's a lot to talk about a lot of emotions and such and and the recording kind of ceased but the the last kind of session that we had last week uh i was at Jade's house friday and we were talking about just getting back in you know he he has probably i think like five or six more tracks that he wants to record that he's really excited about so it's just about making the time now and you know balancing that out with what is going to happen at 8035. So, you know, we're, we're there, we're doing the, the work, etc. Um, but it, it's kind of stalled because of, of that personal situation. So we're not as far along as we wanted to be, but you know, we're going through that process and kind of trying to pick it up again at this point.
0: What do you say when one of your brothers loses a child? What do you do when you lose someone close to you? And what do you say to any of that as an onlooker, a stranger on the outside looking in on something like this? As he and I discussed, I wanted to make sure there was respect paid to him, to Asfate, to the complete family of people affected, agreeing we could cut all of this out of the interview. But the conversation continued by addressing the desire to shine light on it rather than stay resigned to the darkness of its reality.
1: You know, he's a, in his personal life, he's a he's a private guy. You know, a lot of people don't know his real name. Like, I would be somewhat uncomfortable telling you his real name because he takes it that seriously. There's a lot of people that are connected to him in the community understood what happened. And I think, like, outside of that, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's 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 a weird scenario, and it's, it's, you know, it's something, you know, I have two small kids because it's, it's I, I want to say that I understand, but
2: I know I don't understand, and I don't want to understand. What he's going through is so terrible
1: that it's—it's it's just really hard to see him in that state. He's someone who, throughout the time I've known him, has been pretty invulnerable. Like he just—he's uh, impervious to everything, right? And he has a very strong mental attitude about things where, hey, this isn't going to bother me. This can't stop me. I'll run through this wall if I need to. And this is the first time that, you know, you've seen him, like, hurt and be, you know, like, something got him. And it's a, it's it's different. And it's something that we're kind of, you know, trying to navigate. And he doesn't want it to be happy ever. He he appreciates, you know, us taking that stance. But at the same time, he's like, no, I don't care. Let's, Let's go. I need this to be moving. I don't... I can't dwell on those things. I'll feel those things when I, I want to feel them. So it's it's yeah, it's hard. It's different. Um, not what we expected it to be,
0: for sure. And different is where Aon Gray sees the work heading, as the group continues forward with its plan, despite this foundation-shattering obstacle.
1: I think it, it sets context for, I think, not only what has happened over the past couple of months, but likely also for the new record. It's interesting because you know we recorded these five songs, and they were they were. I mean, they were more typical kind of what we did. And he always has this kind of like um, melancholy approach to it. We've always had this alignment of we've steered away from making music that is, I guess, like triumphant, right? And and (laughs) the way he's always put it is like, we can't do stuff like that because we're not winning. Like regardless of what situation in life we're in, we're not with, right? We're the little guy everywhere. It, when you take it out of this or that, it, as MCs, as producers, making music will kill everybody. But in the grand scheme of things, we're we fodder, right? So so it's always had that kind of tone. But his wife was, she you know her and I talked about it a lot, and, and she was kind of like, she's she's excited to hear the new record, because she thinks, you know, he's obviously changed. But also, I mean, it, it, it's also different because I think it will have a very, I mean, in my mind, it'll have a consistent tone of sadness, right? Yet to be determined, but uh, I don't I don't know how it could, I guess. Which is fine. You know, it, it's, you make music based on who you are and what you're experiencing. But that is likely where we're headed, right?
0: In a way, whatever Maxilla Blue releases will be affected by the context surrounding its creation. But in some ways, as Aon Gray pointed out, the circumstances befallen on the group throughout this process serve to magnify a message that was already carried within the music they'd been working on. There's
1: one, there's one of the new tracks that is, you know, the, the, it's it's I would say it's, it's stand out for him in terms of of how he is delivering and performing you know normally he's kind of got this more rapid fire type of uh, delivery and this is like very subdued a lot of space in the verse and, and it's it's almost so repetitive in terms of like the the theme is line for line the theme stays the same and the whole thing is like I don't care about your problems right we all have problems and regardless of what those problems are, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I, and I'm going to overcome kind of everything. And that's even been a tone of, you know, our practice since sense, kind of what's happened. It, you know, when we say, hey, you want to stop this show, do you not want to do it? And, no, I, I want to do it because I don't want to be an MC that says I didn't do a show for any reason. Even though he has the most valid reason in the world to not do it. He wants to get up there and be like, I rocked 8035 regardless. And say something about it. Because my daughter just died and I'm here performing for you. Right? Um, I mean he takes this craft and pretty much everything he does, he takes it that seriously. Right? He 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 never would make excuses for anything. And and you know, he's he's kind of like that is oozing from the songs that we've already recorded. So it'll be interesting to see, like, if that that approach comes out, or if it does become more reflective sadness on the, the stuff that I haven't actually
0: heard yet. Aside from him and Asfate, I wanted to know where DJ Touch Nice played into this.
1: You know, I, I would say of the three of us, he's the most motive, like, most sentimental, emotional. Which is weird because he's the least outspoken, right? <laughs> There's no voice of him outside of what he does with his hands. But, but I mean, he is, he, he's hurting a lot. Um, you know, cause like I said, we all grew up, and she, she was as much, you know, a part of our lives as, as, as his for, for especially the years that we were really active. You know, she was at all the shows. She was breakdancing. She'd come to practices. She'd be in the studio when we were recording. I mean, she was always there. So it's, you know, it's really hard because it is, it's kind of unfathomable. Like, you know, we've all kind of lost the child. None to the degree of the loss that he's obviously feeling. But I mean, it hurts. And, and I think, I know Touch nice has had, you know, him and I have talked about it a lot. And I know the first first few weeks especially, I mean, just, it just hurt. is just kind of devastating. And, you know, I, I don't really know. But like I said, he, he's emotional how he's navigating through it, I, I think is kind of in his own ways, but it's 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 different. I mean, the the vibe is different in terms of when we're not performing or, like, practicing at this point. Once you start to practice, it's, hey, we're doing this. It doesn't matter. But outside of that, I mean, everything is just kind of, you know, it's hard, right? Because a piece of us is missing even though it's, you know, it's just it's just not there anymore and it's it's bizarre. But I'll say this, like and, and this is you know, the weirdest thing was that first recording session was probably probably a week, ten days before she passed. And we had planned to do a follow up one, but it didn't happen because she was going through some other issues too. But during that session we were talking, you know, just about kids and, and expectations for children. Um, and I was kind of, you know, sharing, like, I don't, for my kids, I don't have, I don't have the expectations. I, I just want them to be there more than anything else. Find their way, do what they do. Whatever they achieve, like, these achievements or whatever, I mean, if, it, if they've done something that satisfies them, that will make me happy and feel like... You know, if they feel like they've succeeded, they've succeeded. If they're not doctors, you know, whatever. Like, I don't, none of that really worries me too much. We were talking along those lines. And he said, this was the, this kind of set the tone for things, was he looked at me and he said, I threw all that out. He goes, I did everything I could as a parent, and now all I want is my daughter to be alive. And this is before she passed he said, I want to look at her in 10 years. I want to be playing pool with her in 10 years just talking to her. I just want her to be there. I don't care what happens. I don't care what she's been through. I don't care, you know, anything about that. He's like, I just want her to be alive. I want to know that I can speak to her. And then legitimately, 10 days later, that was it. Was it, that was no longer the reality, right? So um, that was a very weird moment of kind of like foresight from him and probably more insight for me into just kind of the situation. I know she was having kind of, you know, mental health issues. Someone who, like him, had a lot of pressure on herself to be successful and do things. And also, you know, I think as well, when she was an exceptional person. And when you're exceptional, sometimes it's hard to find people that you relate to. Right. And you can be very isolating and create a sense of being alone when you think different than everybody. And and I just, I I feel like he had that insight that, Hey, this is not right, but it's, you know, tragic in in all aspects. But that was the first time that was when he said that I just want my daughter to be alive. That's the only expectation I have. That's the only thing that I get hope comes out of being a father is like, my kid survives. And that just, you know, it was like, it was the first vulnerability that I saw from him. And the first kind of um, just inkling that, like, hey, something's not necessarily good here. But, like, let's work and let's get through it. But, yeah, then, you know, like I said a week later, 10 days later, I got a text message that was just, you know, she's gone. I don't know what to do. So, and here we are today, just trying to do whatever we can, I guess.
0: While a million miles away from any conversation about the record, this continued into more thoughts about fatherhood and the unexpected impact that's had on his own life.
1: Like I said, I want to say I understand it, because I have children. And I can't fathom and either of them being gone and what that would do to me. Right, like I can't even begin to comprehend the agony and the void that that creates. I don't know if you have kids, but like, it really is something. You know, they say it changes you, right? And it, it really does. I mean, it, it's 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 the strangest and like most wonderful feeling in the world, right? Um, even when they're when they're shitty, right? Like my son looked me dead at the eye once and said, I fucking hate you. 89 years old, right? So it was like, holy hell, like, what is going on here? But, like, even then, like, none of that, like, matters, right? Like, it's just having them, it's a totally, it creates a totally different reality and perspective of the world. And, And I think, you know, historically, kind of prior, I was very focused externally on things. I was very focused on how I related to a larger world, a larger society, you know, my city, people around me, whatever. And I definitely felt consistently on the outside of most things and probably stuff that I I did to myself. But, like, when I had kids, it's like, I don't really care. I didn't care much about it then other than, like, I felt like I maybe deserved something that I potentially didn't. But with having kids, like, I don't care at all. Like, none of that matters as long as I have them, right? If I have them, I mean, everything's good. I can sit down after the worst day with them and feel great. And if they weren't there, just all of a sudden, I don't know. I I don't know what, you know, I don't know. I don't want to know what that feels like. But, like, at the same time, I pondered a lot because, you know, one of my brothers is going through that, and it's, it's kind of maddening, you know? And it kind of, it just, it's, it's just really off. Awesome. It's just everything about it is strange, and, I don't know, it's a surreal situation.
0: A surreal situation for certain, yet one I thought might overlay new meaning onto the year's pre-existing creative plans. I asked if this has changed what coming together and making new music means to him, and the group and whether his intentions with the project have shifted.
1: Well, I, I mean, somewhat it does, I guess, because we also know that that's what she would do, right? If if, if, if this happened to her, her, right, she's looking down right now, and if he didn't keep doing the things that he was doing, she would be disappointed, right? She was kind of his balance, and one of those people who can tell them, like, you're slipping here, you're not doing right. You know, oh, you are making excuses. Get up and do it. And and, that, and that's what i was saying. Like in his mind, like this is just another mountain. This is just another thing that he can conquer. And in the end, he can be like, you got sick and you couldn't do a show. You know, I lost a child. Here yeah. I am. You know, you can't beat me, right? And, and this is like everything to him is, is kind of perceived as that challenge. And I think like. For us as a group, the, you know, we, we we have a closeness. So, I mean, as straight and I, so, you know, little history here. 2009, I moved to San Francisco. 2011, I moved back. The intention of moving to San Francisco was, I mean, one, I, just, I needed to get out of here. Two, I wanted to, like, build something bigger. I felt like we'd done everything that we could in this kind of spectrum. When I moved back, there were some personal things that I was going through. These guys kind of tried to pick me up. I wanted to do things in a different way. You know, I wanted to to change our process methodology of of how we make music. I wanted it to be maybe more, more kind of collaborative from the start, all of us in the same room. But it didn't really materialize. As as I had hoped. And that kind of, it didn't really put a rift, I would say, relationship-wise. Like, it it wasn't, at that point in time, it wasn't anything that we were worried about. But I kind of distanced myself. One, because I was starting a family. Um, And two, you know, I just, I kind of, I wanted to figure some things out for me so that when we went back to make another record, or make more music, there was something different that I was bringing to the table. Something beyond kind of what I was just normally doing. Not just the normal, hey, it's been a couple years, we did another record, it's a little better than the last one. Like, I really was trying to do something amazing um, in my own head, right? And I think, like, that sort of, like, I distanced, I, I focused on the family, I focused on kind of my own craft internally and he you know as he went his way in terms of working more with galapagos for producers and, and things like that and releasing a couple solo albums and i mean him and i didn't because our relationship was so keyed around the music we didn't really communicate over the span of probably 10 years maybe running into each other at shows or whatever but, but not a whole lot of interaction. When the eighty thirty five thing came, you know, he messaged, we hadn't done a show with me, with them, as Max Little Blue since 2009, middle of 2009. So, you know, he said, I just want to do it in the old way. We want all of us on stage. This might be the last time let's all go out together, right? So, we met, but it wasn't, there's no time that 10 years was nothing, right? We met and everything just we knew each other, we knew where we were, we knew what we were doing and we were just moving. So, you know, it's it's kind of a, you know, we have an understanding and we have this this thing where even with practice, we've only practiced a couple times, but it just works. feelings kind of always just works it's never really been effort. It's just kind of we get together, we make music, we go do shows, and it just works between three people, which is rare. Because I've tried other groups, I've worked with a lot of other artists, and it's a lot of work. And it never feels that way with these guys. Um, and I'm probably way off topic of where I was going with this, but, you know, we, we had this disconnect, kind of came back everything was purely kind of natural, like no time passed in between. And then this happened. And it's kind of set a different weight to, I guess, what we're doing in terms of not that we have a bigger reason or a higher purpose to do it, other than there's an obstacle in our way. It's more of just that, you know, this is what we do. And at any point in time, we can step up and do it. And it doesn't matter, right? Ten years away, 15 years from a show, whatever, it'll be, it, it just works. It just does. I and mean, it's it's hard to explain. I mean, it's, my relationship with these guys is, is somewhat magical. I have kind of two pockets of friends. I have a couple of guys that I know from high school who I consider family, who I grew up with. And then I have such nice and as who are, you know, who are brothers. And any time that passes between our interactions, it's no time, right? It's just back in stride. Everything's normal. I mean, there's never animosity. Like, we didn't break up, you know. There's nothing like that. It just it took a hiatus of its own. So, I mean, it's a it's a weird situation right now, but it still feels right, even though there's so much going on.
0: Bringing the focus back to the music. I was curious if there had been any discussion along the way about what shape the release of the fourth Maxilla Blue album would take and whether it'd be put out by a central standard label.
1: You know, it's always been somewhat of the home for Maxilla. We did the last record kind of in partnership with Galapagos 4. I know his records came out with previously on, on Galapagos, but I think we just kind of looked at it and we just said, like, whatever this is, it is, and it stands alone, right? Nobody really, yeah, I Let's be honest. None of those labels really matter. It doesn't bring anything to the table except another name that we're putting on it to try and classify it a little bit and, and tie things together. But, you know, I think we're, we've all come to be like, that just is what it is. And we can go beyond that. I mean, there's no reason to to worry about it, right? We're all grown now. We don't need help financially. We don't need any of those things. So we can, we can manage on our own one way or the other.
0: As a fan, I only started listening to Aeon Graham Maxilla Blue last year, but when I did there became an apparent contrast between the two that I picked up on. Relaying this in our discussion, the touchpoints I used to ground the comparisons are potentially a little antiquated, but they make sense to me. Maxilla's music sounds closer to the Midwestern backpack, boom bap style I think of when I think of early Rhymesayers albums, maybe something closer to Atmosphere. While what I first heard from his solo work aligns more closely with the fragmented and, at times creatively rigid, darker soundscapes of early Def Jux albums like the Cold Vein from Cannibal Oxen LP, I was curious what differences he was aware of when it came to his approach, stylistically, between his solo and group work.
1: The newer Max Solo stuff is definitely... it's probably more in between. You know, I mean, my personal stuff is, uh, you know, it, it's not very melodic, right? It's very rhythm-based, it's kind of noisy. Um, it has, you know, tonal qualities. But, like, from a musicality perspective, I mean, it's mostly collage and and kind of just berry things, right? Um, and I think, like, some of that is included more in the newer Maxilla stuff. Um, I've been a little more free to... Uh, You know, he kind of opened up and was like, give me some of the weird things. Give me some of the really slow things um, and let me see what I can do, right? Because I think he's, you know, he's more open to expanding. When we started working on Maxima, it it really was, we just wanted to make music and just good music. And I always had an approach to producing records that I always wanted to do something different for, for anybody I was working with, right? And, and I didn't want to cram people into whatever my sound was. I wanted to be able to be a producer and kind of curate for them a sound and a, you know a sonic spectrum that suited what they wanted to do and was a little more curated towards them. And I think, like, early on, he had a lot of of input kind of say and beat selection and things like that. And I think he did through the first three records, realistically. Um, So, but I was trying to curate for him, right? I wanted him to be comfortable to do whatever he wanted to do. Because I'll be honest, from the moment that I met him and heard him run, He's the best rapper I know. He's the... In my book, I would put him above pretty much anybody. Like, he is... He is that good in, in my mind, right? And I think, like, we just had that, that kind of click of... I just want to do what you whatever you want. And I have these ideas and these kind of sketches in terms of beats. And it kind of went along that way. It, it, it me just kind of feeding... Things I thought he would sound good on And him kind of eating them And with this record He opened up a little more And said give me some of the weird stuff Give me some of the slow stuff Some of the really syncopated You know off rhythm Things and let me see what I can do Might not make the album But maybe we'll record something Laugh about it whatever it is um, You know but, but he's more open To those things and I think that that's that's definitely shifted my mentality a little bit, and I'm giving him things that I normally would have just kept and sat on for myself, and just trying to see if he if he even chooses them. And he has chose a few of them, so um, I'll be interested, like in the new record spectrum, when we get kind of everything recorded and, and laid out and start figuring out where the pieces sit. Uh, you know, what if that maybe makes makes it into the mix but but it definitely has a broader spectrum of sounds and qualities to it from a production standpoint more than just that kind of you know kind of like most people would say it's like retro 90s boom bap type type hip hop with you know maybe some DJ shadow elements with the longer loops and instrumental pieces and things like that but like I think we've added in some other things again, that come out of my, my kind of toolkit that we haven't before in a Max Ziller record.
0: Given how much time has passed between now and when the group first came together, I was curious how Ian Gray's relationship with creating music has changed and whether it's morphed and shifted as he's aged.
1: Drastically changed. <laughs> um, and, and I would say, you know, a lot of that is shifting my focus to, okay, I have this, music's not gonna necessarily be my career, right? I love music, I love making music, um, but I have this other, you know, human job thing that I do that pays for things, right? So that takes time, and then on top of that, I have a family, I have children. So I've had to very much, um, so I'd say at the time that I really started producing heavily again after moving back from San Francisco, I was traveling a lot for work. For probably a few years, I spent, you know, a few months every year in India for my job. Um, I was traveling around the U.S. on West Coast, Texas, East Coast, again, for, for my, my work. And that changed the way I had to produce. Because normally, I would sit down and I'd just listen to records. That was the start of everything, right? Trying to find a sample. So I'd listen to records, find a sample, MPC... And then I'm going to really, like, flesh this thing out over the span of, of days, right? Where I'm spending hours and hours in in kind of my my little area working on music. The world to travel for work, the family aspect, I don't have that kind of time anymore. So I shifted to more kind of mobile aspects of, of making music. You know, a couple apps on my phone record as many samples into it as I can so that I have kind of this stockpile of things, um, to utilize. And then as well, even, you know, one of the things that kind of, I did a little bit of on the third national record and was doing somewhat in my stuff, but, but it's even heavier now is utilizing synthesizers and kind of actual, you know, instrumentation or, um, just small keyboard riffs, replaying bass lines, things like that. I've done more of that. And kind of, that's a skill I think that I've developed over the past 10 years, but realistically prior to that, I didn't, didn't have much of, um, I was a heavy sample producer. That's what I did. So with this kind of where we're at now, I would say I'm doing more of those things and trying to find ways to mesh them in. So the sound is consistent. Um, but it, but it still kind of has more kind of movement to it, right? And, and and has elements that are not just from this this record. And again, I mean, that almost comes out of the necessity to change my process. I have to be mobile. You know, I'm sitting on a plane, with headphones on, making music on my laptop, my phone, my iPad, whatever it is. Um, I mean, one of the songs on one of my own personal albums. Came out in the last five years. I recorded it on pods in a hotel room, right? And, and I felt I did it as a draft, but I felt like it was the best take, and I kept it. And it's the worst sound quality ever. <laughs> so i just, i just kind of like I've, you know, I used to have this idea of like this way that I'm creating, and and these things, you know, I want it to sound this very specific way, um, but 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 at the same time, limiting myself by what I'm using. Because I have these samples, I have this, I have that. I've kind of just opened that up. And I've also let go of some of... um, You know, I'm not chasing a pristine sound quality anymore. And I'm not going as far as Madlib where, you know, I'm going to record something on the worst four track ever and just say it is what it is. But, But, like, I'm not... Sometimes it just works. Like, hey, we caught something in the moment. There's noises in the background, whatever it is. That's fine that was the moment, that was the magic, right? I don't want to have to try to recreate any of that. So I loosened up some of the things that I had that were probably restricting me. And then I've I've just been much more open-minded towards, you know, growing and and even trying new styles. I mean, I experiment in other, you know, you could say like trap beats or whatever else. I can't do them in the way that other producers do them, obviously, because it's still... My brain doesn't work that way, it still works the way it does. But like, I'm trying different things that I wouldn't have tried before. Maybe even, you know, in the past would have been like, that's so easy. I don't want to do it. Now it's like, I want to do it, but in a way that it's different and odd. And, you know, kind of is a part of my voice if I was using that voice.
0: There was a song I heard last year, which he produced for Smooth G. And I mentioned it within this part of our conversation. In part, asking where collaborating with others falls into this ongoing shift he's experienced.
1: I'm I'm not focused on this, I need to release an album every year, I need to do this, what's next for the label. Like, none of that stuff has mattered to me over the last 10 years. I've legitimately just made music. And when I've put out records, um, when I've given beats to people, it, it legitimately has just kind of happened. So, you know, the last few, like, solo records that I put out, I mean, it just kind of happened. And some of those songs span over five or six years' worth of time. And I just ended up, and I'd be like, okay, what do I have? And I'm like, oh, this all kind of works. I should, you know, this is everything comes together kind of much more naturally. Or when I'm given, you know, beats out to Smooth and kind of some of these other guys, it's just kind of like, I have this urge at that point in time, like, I have all these beats that I don't, I'm not going to be able to rap on it because I have a, a a tonal quality and a way that I approach it. And I just, I can't, I can't even write to those beats very well. It just doesn't, doesn't work for me. So it's like, I, I have this urge to like, I want these, I think these are good tracks. I want other people on them. And then I start reaching out to people who I normally wouldn't have reached out to in the past. Right? Like just, Hey, what do you think about this? Would you be willing to do this? Can I send you some tracks? And, you know, and I send them a bunch of stuff and whatever they use gets used, I guess. I mean, and I'm and I'm doing that in a way that historically, it's, I'm not sending you a beat unless you're recording with me, right? I don't want to hear your bad studio setup or how you're mixing things. Like, I, I would want to control that end-to-end. And I really just let that go because, you know, have kids i don't want people in my house <laughs> i'm just you know it became this thing of like but i want to hear this so here give it a shot and let's see what happens um and, and that, was, that was definitely a change for me um drastically different
0: as aeon Grey has continued creating music for himself i was curious how his perspective on new music or young artists has changed with time one of the trends that came to mind was that of young rappers jumping on beats they ripped from youtube and this isn't entirely unlike mixtape culture from days gone by, but I was curious about any feedback he had on modern trends and how they're seen through the lens of his own creative past.
1: If, if you're young and you're trying to make it today, like we made albums, right? In the 2000s, we made records. That's what we wanted to do. It wasn't, and that's what people wanted. And now it's shifted to, did I make a song that somebody's going to use on TikTok Right? Did I make something that I can shoot a a, a one and a half minute video for that's going to go viral on one of these social media platforms? I think the 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 intention of what a lot of these young artists are doing is just drastically different in this space and time than what it was when we were making records. And and you know we were making songs. So I think like they have this motto of like I'm going to record a million songs. And I'm going to just put them out over time, the best ones, you know, and whittle my way down. You know, I've always been focused on, I really want to always make whole pieces of music. And especially when I was really active with it. I don't want to work with MCs unless they want to do a whole album. Like, I don't want, I I always had a problem giving someone a beat that I knew was just going to be one beat on an album of 20 songs with 19 other producers. I always wanted, like, let's really craft something. Let's do something end-to-end. Let's create an experience. Like, and if, you know, when working with Kadima in the past, like, he would always bring in beats. But even he was mindful, he knew what I was going to tolerate if, if I was producing that record. Because, you know, he would bring some stuff, and I'd be like, this just doesn't fit. You know, this is what we set out to do. It doesn't fit. As a like, I have a producer mind more than just a beat maker as well. Like I want to make something complete, and I think like you know that for younger guys, it's very hard for them to hear some of those things, right? And to have somebody externally being like, "No, like this is what we should do, or let's try this." Um, the mindset is different, and I would have been the same way when I was young, right? Nobody, can, nobody can tell younger MCs, especially anything. You're the best. You're going to do what you do. Nobody can compete with you. Your stuff's the greatest. And if you don't believe that, you're probably not cut out to be in this field anyway, right? You're not going to be an MC if you don't have that mentality in you. So I, I understand where it comes from. I understand kind of what they're doing. You know, for me personally, it's, it's always been more about I want to curate whole projects and kind of dripping out some of these tracks to people. I was kind of hoping it would lead to a full project. Some of them would record one song and, and put it up, you know, and that's fine. I mean, I gave it to them. They can do what they want to do and I, I let it go. But, like, in my mind, I was I was throwing hooks in the water trying to catch, like, hey, let's do a whole record together. Um, And in terms of, like, working with younger guys for me, like, there's been a handful of guys that I have kind of actively pursued you know, locally or even like regionally of, I want to do a record with you. And it just, I think, you know, I'm in a different place in life. Right. So like, I, for me to, to get in their mindset of like, Hey, I want to record at midnight till four in the morning. Some of that's hard. I, 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 to be honest, I don't, I don't, I probably want to do it, but I also don't want to do it because there's life outside of it. Um, Masala will do it, and that is what it is. But for people that I, I, I'm trying to build something with, I guess, like, it it needs to also fit within the confines of my general living structure. Um, and, and there's some, definitely some guys in Des Moines that I really, like, want to work with. You know, I want to kind of help them develop and curate. But again, I think the mindset is just different. You know, they, they're not... Um, you know, in their mind, I'm going to release 10 albums a year, mixtapes, whatever it is, and, and I'm just going to keep running. And, and I don't really care where the beats come from because I'm the rapper and those beats are just there to be behind me, right? Uh, I just I don't see it that way. And, and that's where Maxilla comes in. is It's a whole unit and we all work together towards this one thing. Like, There aren't groups anymore in the span of hip-hop, right? It's a very rare thing. Um, and, and I actually appreciate that. I appreciate being collaborative. I appreciate input. I have a handful of producers that I know who anything even I do personally, my own records, like I'm bouncing ideas off them, I'm getting their input. that's always been a part of my process. But I feel like a lot of people it's 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 not you know, it's just it's a, it's an ego thing. It's a strength thing and it's not what they want. So, I I get
0: it. I had to sort of laugh as we were talking about this idea of groups and collaboration because of the Def Jux comment from earlier. It was only after the label went bankrupt that its founder and face, LP, found his greatest commercial success by teaming up with Killer Mike for Run the Jewels. This continued the discussion about the idea for groups in modern hip-hop. Bands are
1: regularly highly more successful than rappers, right? And, And, I mean if you look at hip-hop in general at a mainstream level, I mean, majority of the guys that people would say are the best still make music and have been for the past 20 years, right? Lil Wayne, Jay-Z, what, whatever. And it's, it's very strange to me that, you know, like, you see, especially when you're coming up, it's much easier as a group. It's much easier as a collective. But at the same time, it when with a band everybody knows their role i'm the bass player i'm the guitar player i'm the drummer i sing i play keyboard when you're when you're making hip-hop music you have people who are the producers and you have people who are the MCs. and it's very rare for MCs to come together and and, and see each other and especially as we've shifted away from in, in modern song making i guess you could say like hip-hop was all bravado, braggadocia, right? It was, um, even when you were making a song specifically about something or content that was, you know, emotional, like, you're always trying to still up somebody. It has this natural competitiveness at the back of it, and it's not really a team sport. So, you know, even, like, the bum rap records that we made in between the, the couple Maxilla records, like, that was more of, like, an exercise, right? And it was me trying to keep up with As and be like, you know, I can rap too. I can do this in a different way as good as this guy. You know, and, and that was like me as a... just as the MC side of me wanting to be that. But that's not sustainable, right? Like, in a group setting, you have to have people who are very comfortable with themselves, know who they are, know what they want to be able to achieve those things. And especially when you're dealing with younger, you know, 20 somethings, it's rough to be like, Hey, I got you on this. Like nobody wants to acknowledge that. Right. You always want to go and it's easier to just do it yourself. And if you have somebody on a song, it's because you know they're better or they have a better following or whatever. And you're trying to up yourself. Um, It's weird. It's all weird. I understand why it doesn't work. I wish it worked more because when I've been a part of groups, or done things in that direct collaboration. Um, like, that spirit really does excel everything. Uh, just, you know, and the end result, when you can bring a bunch of people together, is always better.
0: There have been a lot of opportunities for reflection in the decade-long span between albums. And in that time, I was curious what stands out to Aeon Grey as the milestones for which he's most grateful.
1: The whole thing, to be honest, there, like I said, was with, with Maxilla especially, everything is perfect. When a show doesn't go right, it's still perfect. When when you know, when there's ten people there, when there's five people there, we're rapping in some dude's garage in Colorado, it's perfect. And, and that's just the mindset that we've always taken. This is what we do. Whether whether we're opening for Ghostface or, you know, in Europe or, or whatever, eighty thirty five, it doesn't matter. Because this is what we do and if we weren't here, it's likely what we'd be doing anyway. You know, whether we're at home, like just just rapping to ourselves, freestyling, making music, writing. So like just really grateful, I mean, for the whole thing. The the experience of being able to to meet Asving and to be like, This is amazing And for him to be like, This is amazing and for us to just share that and be like, All right, let's make something and then be like, bring Touch Nice in, and be like, "Hey, you're you're great," and and, and everything just works. Like I said, so like I don't know. There's not a, a like I'm really grateful for the whole thing. I'm grateful for being able to take ten years apart from it and not do anything. I mean, we haven't released an album since 2010, so almost 15 years, 13 years. It's I'm just grateful that time doesn't pass. You know, it's not like we got together and we're like, oh, we got to learn how to do this again. We just knew what it was. And we started, it just fell in, just very naturally. And and I think, like, that is the thing that I'm most grateful for is those two guys. Because there's no time that, you know, I know that I couldn't call them, needing them and get something from them, or and, and vice versa, right? And just that whenever we're together, like, that is family. That is the deepest core of, you know, who we are. Um, you know, knowing they would look out for my children as, in the same way I do. I mean, it's like that is truly what I'm most grateful for. It's just them. And, and you know, everything that we've done along the way is awesome. And But it, it would not have been the same, like, without them. None of this would have been as rewarding or as enjoyable without those guys there. I've done tours by myself, and it's awful. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but like, you know, getting in a van with six guys who I barely know, building those relationships is fun, but I would have always much rather been doing it with them. It just would have been, that would have been what it is. And to be honest, I didn't go on the European tour. Because at that point in my head it was like, I don't want to do live shows. And that is maybe my only regret, is that I didn't do that with them, just to experience it with them. But otherwise, man, like I said, just those guys and being able to share the moments that we've shared, the family moments that we shared, the things that we've done together, that that's the thing that just makes it all worthwhile.
0: And this comment came from a mistake I'd made, thinking the group went over to play some European shows as a complete unit. The decision to sit out that opportunity is one that sticks with him.
1: Yeah, so... So when i moved to california this is where the ego got me in maxilla um because i was starting to be seen as only a hype man um and, and not that i was actually an mc in places that we were because we were broader with maxilla than i ever was as an individual so like people were just being like oh there's asphate and there's this hype man and I was like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, you. I'll bust your ass on a microphone. Like, I don't care. Like, I, I rap, I Let's, let's do that. And so, like, I had kind of this chip of from that that kind of aspect of it. And, and I, I just, you know, I felt like I want. Like I said, I wanted to focus on different things. I wanted to focus on creating the music and doing those things. And I kind of walked away from doing live shows. And then that opportunity came up, and. And they were like, you want to go? And of course I wanted to go, but I, I, I wasn't maybe through it in my head yet. And I, I didn't go. And then that's the one thing that, that I missed is missing the chance to do that with them. You know, their, their wives went on it with them too. Um, so it really was like everybody, you know, together. It would have been, that would have been, that's the one point that I'm like, I should have done that everything else that happened doesn't should, but I should have done that. That's the one thing that I missed.
0: But to me, this is one of those things that, sure, you can look at framing it as something of a regret, but it can also be used to enrich future experiences. Like, had he to do it all over again, that seems to be a decision that would have been made differently in the past, but now he knows what it's like to miss out on something like that which can help shift the interpretation of opportunities like the one he's got now to get back together with friends and continue to create music with each other.
1: It it definitely, you know, definitely like changes my perspective on things. I mean, like, you know, everything that's coming, like I said, as long as as it's us, we're good. And I don't want to have to miss anything again. You know, I don't. I've grown to a point where like, I don't need to be worried about those things. Right. Like I let something get to me that I shouldn't have. And I've definitely moved past that to where I know what I'm, I'm doing here in this group. And I know that this group isn't this group without me. Right. And regardless of what happens on stage or how people look at it, I mean, none of that really has ever mattered, but at some point, I got in my head about how I was being perceived, right? And that was that was the wrong wrong thing for me. So I'm definitely like grateful that it's back. And you know, it's weird because there's definitely people who are like, "Oh, you guys got back together," but we never we never did break up. I never we never had a falling out. We didn't have any big argument, and I stormed away or anything like that. It just you know we just moved different directions for a while. And now it's back, and and that's, you know, that's just natural to me. Like, this is all happening as it's kind of supposed to
0: happen. While the conversation most definitely took on a direction of its own, there was one thing I didn't want to let slip before we wrapped up. When going back through older stuff online, I came across an interview clip from the period of time where he was out in San Francisco. In the interview, Aeon Gray was talking a little about the shelf life of hip-hop. At the time, he mentioned Rakim as someone who didn't need to keep on making music, yet was doing just that. And now a decade removed from that thought, he himself is performing at a festival in a capacity which an uninformed fan could confuse for a nostalgia act. I was wondering how his position might have changed as he himself has aged, and what he now thinks about his past comments, now a decade removed from them.
1: It's, it's actually like hilarious that you bring this up because... Somebody posted that clip recently, and I just I saw in that exact segment. You know, I definitely have that mentality of like God, I don't want to be this old guy on stage rapping to a bunch of young kids, right? Or trying to compete with young kids for for as these times change, like they especially like they do with hip hop music, which is you know it's a young art form, right? It doesn't still only like 40, 50 years old. So it's not, you know, it's still evolving. And I definitely had that mentality. I don't, I felt like I was going to run out of things to rhyme about. Right. I was going to run out of stories to tell. That would be intriguing. And I kind of attribute that to, I wasn't living a life at that point in time. I mean, I, I was, but everything around that life was music. So, so, the output of what I wanted to do vocally and how I was looking at things. I mean, it was just, it felt redundant. It felt like there's no experiences. There's nothing that's, that's forcing me to change the way I'm doing things. So why would I keep doing this? Right. And, and even for somebody like, you know, Rock him or somebody who had this notoriety at some point and, and continues to go like, you know, it, it kind of comes down to: Are you are you evolving as an artist? Are you still capable of doing what you're doing? Are you getting better? Um, and what experiences do you have that you are sharing? And it's it's the other kind of interesting point of this is there was an interview with that I read that, that Lauren Hill had done at some point, and you know after the miseducation of Lauren Hill came out, everybody was pressuring her to do another record, right? She was on top of the world, listed as like one of the greatest ever that she disappeared and the way she the way she explained it was she couldn't deal with the pressure of people wanting her to make music when she had nothing to make music about Um, because she just laid her whole life out on a record she hadn't done anything since that record except support that record so if she was gonna go in the studio and make another record it would either be these fabricated kind of concepts and ideas Um, or it would just be about the record right and and then it becomes this cycle of just hey I make music about making music and I think when I said that I think at that point in time I was scared like I'm just run out of things and I'm gonna run out of things so I think like that kind of lull that I had of where I continued to make music but with no intention of putting it out and I was more focused on you know family and kids and 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 developing myself as a person and experiencing things like it led me to be open about just hey i'm just making art and as long as i have something to write about as long as i'm living life i have the capability of making music writing doing those things but once i stop living that's when i'm gonna run into that struggle and and pursuit ceasing the pursuit of being like I have this record, here's the promotion cycle, this is what we're going to do, I need to contact these blogs. Once I just threw all that out? It was so much more relieving because there was no kind of echo chamber, there was nothing that I was worried about in terms of like, is this good enough for anybody? It didn't matter, right? Am I going to get attention? If I press this vinyl, is it going to sell? None of that like, even crossed my mind. It was, I'm just making music. And, It is what it is. And and I could do this, you know, now I look at it as like, why wouldn't I do this forever? As long as I have something to write about, as long as I have experiences to share, as long as I have a perspective um, that is mine, that I think could resonate with someone else, I should share that. Because from the start of it, for me, making the music I made and being so kind of like, stubborn and hard-headed about stylistically what I wanted to do, how I wanted to speak, um, a lot of that was because I wanted to find people like me. It's not for everybody. You do a show for 100 people, there's maybe five people who really understand me, maybe one, who really understand what I'm saying, and I'm okay with that. Because that's the person that I want to get to know and relate to, and, and, and they're sharing those experiences and that's kind of how I see it. As long as I have that perspective, as long as I have something new, as long as, you know, there's I'm still kind of searching and kind of growing as a person, there's no reason to stop. Um, and that was a stupid ass statement that I made 12 years ago, right? I was just in that cycle.
2: Anymore, I saw on Fantastic Planet. Cyborg, tantrum, panic. Mind born outside the AI formed and diagrams organic. Diaphragm force between the the men and savage man's phantom forge frantic. In response to the acid, coarse fabric, cracked and leaking. Demanding more sanitation, support, standing. Ages, story, cannon stranded on desert islands with only. They strictly map for golden drugs. Conditioned gratis, Pavlov's handless, the taste of blood on swollen tongues. They can catch fangs fabricated without platinum plate and a gypsum plaster of Paris to mold the fronts. Fractions placated with the base to hold them up, slaves to the weight that exposed the hatred. Mozart odium, cold heart, corroded lungs, saliva live, Komodo sludge, throwing.